Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all here this morning. It's great to have some, uh, I'll say old faces, but some folks that we've not seen for a long time. Stephen and Ruth Jemison, it's fantastic to have you with us. And other folks that are here from time to time and are visiting family, it's great to have you. It's so good to see you all here this morning. And if, again, if it's your first time, then an extra special welcome <laughs> to you this morning. Uh, on, on your seat, there's outlines. If you find those helpful, they'll be kind of uh, following us through what we're looking at this morning. Two weeks ago, Claire and I spent a few days in a cottage up in Northumberland in a place called Heppel. Um, we've been going there as a family probably for about 20 years now for our holidays. And even though it's only 40 minutes drive, it feels like a whole other world when you get up into Northumberland and you're completely away from everything. And one of the things that we love about it is that it has an open fire. And I just love a real fire. There's just something lovely about sitting in front of a, a real open fire. This is a picture of the fire in the cottage. This is the front room. And apart from the fact that it creates heat and warms the room and makes it kind of pleasant to sit there and all the rest of it, it's just so relaxing. And, and I could quite easily just sit, and in fact I have probably spent many weeks of my life now actually sat in front of that fire just reading various books that um, I, I enjoy to read and just kind of relaxing and just enjoying the, the process of sitting by the fire. I could just sit there all day, in fact I have done on, on occasion, just sit all day and just enjoy the fire. There's just something magical about it, isn't it? In fact, when we got home last week, Claire went on uh, YouTube on our TV and she put a, a video of a real fire on. We put the TV on the, on the fireplace and we sat and watched the telly with the fireplace. And Mark and Jean were around for dinner on Friday night and we did the same on Friday night. We just sat and watched uh, YouTube with a pretend fire. But it's, it's kind of magical. It feels like a real fire. There's no heat from it, but it feels like a real fire and you relax and it's lovely. But as nice as fires are, and fires are lovely, as nice as fires are, they also have to be treated with a huge amount of respect, don't they? Because they're incredibly dangerous. Fires are really, really dangerous. Many of you will know that I love researching my family history. The other thing I spend my spare time doing, other than sitting in front of the fire, is researching my family history. And I recently found that my great-great-grandfather, a man called Alexander McLean, he had a son called Robert. He was my great-grandmother's brother, and he was born in 1888 in War's End. And when he was four years old, his uncle, who was still living in Scotland, sent him a little kilt. And one day, when he was only four years old, stood in front of the fire, the kilt caught fire, and he was tragically burned and died later that day. In fact, the death certificate said he, he lived 15 hours after the incident. Utterly tragic, utterly horrendous. Fires are lovely, and they give off lots of heat and warmth, which we need, but fires need to be treated with huge respect, don't they? Fires need to be treated with great respect. You can't play with fire. If you do, you get hurt. And that means that if you have a real fire in your living room, then you need to have a fire guard, like the one that's there. You need to have fire tools, a poker, a tongs, all the rest of it, because you obviously can't put your hands in. You need to keep your distance. You need to keep a kind of sensible and respectful distance from the fire because it's dangerous. Fires burn things up. They consume things. And the fire in the cottage that we were in last week was burning a mixture of coal and, 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 and logs. And by the end of the evening, a whole basket full of logs, a whole uh, kind of urn full of coal had been consumed by the fire. It just didn't exist anymore. It had gone. The Bible describes God as a consuming fire. That's one of the descriptions that are given of God. He is a consuming fire. And the, in fact, the, the, the last verse that Joel read for us last week in our uh, passage in Hebrews 
uh, says just that. It, it says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. It's not that we need to be frightened of God and, and, and run away from him. The point the writer is making is that God is awesome, God is mighty, and just like a fire, we need to treat God with a huge amount of respect. God isn't to be treated lightly. He's, he's not our mate next door. He's the holy, holy God. We've just sung. He is holy, holy, holy. He's the God who consumes his enemies. He's the God who just spoke and the whole universe came into existence. And yet, and this is what is mind-blowing, and yet, for those who've put their faith and trust in Jesus and surrendered their lives to him, God welcomes those people into his family and adopts them as his firstborn sons. And despite God being like an incredible, awesome, consuming fire that we should really be frightened of and stay away from, we can have the most amazing and intimate relationship with God. Because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done for us in becoming a real man, in dying in our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins, and then rising from the dead, we get to have our sins removed if we put our trust in Jesus. Our, our sins can be removed. We're forgiven, and we become God's children, adopted as if we were his firstborn sons with all the privilege and status that that brings. God, the awesome, consuming fire, becomes our loving Heavenly Father when we put our trust in Jesus. And yet, he never ceases to be that consuming fire. So we can come close. We can come, not just close, but we can come right into his very presence. There was, when, when the fire in our cottage last week, there was a kind of, you know, you try and get as close as you could and warm up, but there's a distance you can't go any closer. It's dangerous. And yet, God, despite his consuming fire, if we've trusted in Jesus, we can come right into his very presence. And we've seen that, haven't we, over and over again as we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews, which is what we've been doing for the last few weeks and months here at, at Regent. Despite the fact that God dwelt in the temple and you couldn't go near and there was the veil and all that kind of stuff, Jesus has made a way. Jesus has made it possible for us to enter into God's presence and have this amazing relationship with him. But the point of this verse is that we should never forget who he is. We should never treat God lightly or with contempt. There's an old expression, familiarity breeds contempt. And sometimes we can be over-familiar with God, and that can lead to contempt. We don't realize just who he is. But if we've trusted in Jesus, then the knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us should have an effect on our lives. The knowledge of who God is and the knowledge of what he's done for us should transform how we live. And as we've worked our way through the book of Hebrews, and as we've focused on who Jesus is and all that he's done for us, We've seen and we've learned some amazing things about who Jesus is and what he's done, haven't we? And that knowledge should totally transform how we live. If it doesn't, if, if, if our lives don't really look any different, then we need to question whether we've really understood and accepted who God is and what he's done for us. Because when we really grasp who God is, the consuming fire, the one who is a consuming fire and burns up his enemies and yet welcomes us and accepts us, when we understand that, it should transform us, and our lives should never be the same again. The verses that follow immediately on after Hebrews 12, 28, which Joel looked at for us last week, which tell us that we should worship God acceptably, with, with reverence and awe, because he's a consuming fire, 
those verses then go on to give us a whole variety of ways. In fact, the rest of the book of Hebrews is full of practical ways in which we're meant to respond to what we've learned through the previous 12 chapters. All of the, the, 12, the first 12 chapters of Hebrews are all about who God is and what he's done for us. And then it's, okay, so what does that look like? What difference should that make in our lives? They're all about the response that we should make to who God is and what he's done for us. They're all about loving God and loving others Loving God and loving others is our response to who God is and to what he's done for us. And in response to God, to all that he is and to all that he's done for us, the only logical response is to love him and to love others. And so in the passage that we're looking at today, which is Hebrews 13, 1 to 6, we, we see five distinct ways in which we're meant to show our love for God and, and, and to show our love to others as a response to who God is. Five distinct and incredibly practical ways that we're meant to respond to God and all that he's done for us and all that he is through Jesus. So, so let's read Hebrews 13, 1 to 6. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you just to uh, open that and, and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. But we're actually just going to start at the end of chapter 12 and just read those verses for a bit of context. So Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to read verse 28 and then we're going to go down to verse 6 of chapter 13. This is what the writer says. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So the first way this passage talks about demonstrating our response to who God is and to all that he's done for us through Jesus is to love our Christian brothers and sisters. Verse 1 says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. When we trust in Jesus, we're adopted into God's family. And every person and every other person that is that, that has also trusted in Jesus also becomes our brother and sister. If you've trusted in Jesus this morning, if you've surrendered your life to him, then you are my brother, you are my sister. And God wants us to treat each other like we're family. But you know, the reality is that, that, that human physical families don't always get on, do they? Sometimes there's a little bit of sibling rivalry or we don't always behave as we should do and so on. And I, I hate to break it to you, but you won't always like or get on with every other Christian you meet. Shock horror, there might be some people in this room that you might struggle with, and even more so, might struggle with you. Certainly, who will struggle with me. There'll be people in this room that you probably won't like, that you'll find difficult to get on with. That's just the reality of life. Once you put more than a few people in a room, somebody at somewhere, there's going to start to be some sparks. That's just, that's just life. And we don't always get on with our physical family, but if they need something, then we put aside our differences, don't we? And we do whatever it takes to help them. Family matters. It's important to us. I, I've got two brothers, one who's with the Lord in heaven now, but the other one's still alive. He lives in South Wales. And even if I had a row with him, we, we get on fine, but even if I had a row with him and fell out with him, if he needed me or vice versa, 
I would drop everything and I'd be there in a flash. And I know that he would as well. He would be up here in a flash because he's my brother. And family matters, and we do that. And that's how God wants us to behave towards one another. I realize not every family functions like that, and sometimes relationships get damaged beyond repair. But that's normal for family life, isn't it? Sometimes families go wrong, but when it comes to it, we treat, we, 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 we're there for our brothers and sisters and our parents and so on. And that is how God wants us to behave towards one another as a church family. God wants us to love our Christian brothers and sisters like family. God wants us to rise above our natural likes and dislikes. We might not always get on. We might not always, you know, the person next to you in the row might not be your natural best buddy and all of that kind of stuff. But we make the choice to rise above that when there's a need in our brothers and sisters' lives. And we love each other, or we should, like family. We're not always going to agree with each other. We're not always going to like each other. We're not always going to get on with each other. But God wants us to make the choice to love each other, to love each other just like family. And, and, and that means that when one of our Christian brothers or sisters has a need, that we drop everything and we go and help them in any way that we can. It means that we're there for each other through the thick and thin, through the difficult times and the bad times. We're there and we help each other. And I have to say personally that I think this church is brilliant at this. Sure, we could do much better. Sure, we could always grow in these things. But I see so many ways in, in the position that I have in this church, I see so many things that are going on behind the scenes that probably lots of other people are not aware of, where people are helping each other, just quietly getting on behind the scenes, putting this into practice, loving each other like brothers and sisters, babysitting, caring, even financially giving and looking out for people and, and being there and helping people. It's brilliant. It's amazing. And let me read in verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, just, well, I'm not an angel, I'm not pretending to be one, so you might have entertained me, I'm not an angel, okay? Just ask my wife, ask my daughter, they will tell you, ask my son for sure, I'm not an angel, okay? But, according to this verse, some of us might have entertained an angel without even realizing it, if we've entertained a stranger. Now, now, now the Greek word behind this phrase, entertain strangers, or show hospitality, literally means to love strangers. This is love in action again. In New Testament times, people didn't have a travel lodge or a you know, holiday inn or whatever to, to stay in. People had to stay in local inns, and apparently they were often unpleasant, they were often dangerous. And so it was great if you were traveling to have a local home who would open their home to you, a family would take you in for the night and give you shelter because life was dangerous. Sometimes there were you know, robbers and bandits and, and all that kind of stuff. Now, times have changed a little for us today. The context is a little bit different, I know, but the principle is the same, that we should show and demonstrate love to people that are strangers no matter who they are or where they come from. If somebody comes across our path and they need our help, they might not need accommodation, but they might need some other kind of help, then we're to show and, and demonstrate love to them no matter who they are. God wants us to love those strangers. He wants us to help them, and that might even include bringing them into our home. Now, now, for sure, we need to be really careful about bringing someone into our home, and we need to put safeguards in place and, and be wise. God isn't just saying, open your home and let anybody kind of move in. And what, you know, For sure, we need to be wise before we just give the keys of our home to people we don't know. We're not meant to switch our brains off we, we, and just allow anybody to come and live with us without first taking some precautions and putting some safeguards into place. That is absolutely the case. But when strangers do come across our path, and that might not always mean that, that they want accommodation, it might just mean that we meet them somewhere or we're out and about. If we see someone who needs help, then God wants us to offer that help to them. He wants us to demonstrate love to strangers. 
The idea is that when we were strangers to God, in fact, the Bible says we weren't just strangers, we were actually his enemies. It was then that Christ died for us. When we were far off, when we were enemies, when we were strangers to God, it was then that Jesus came and died for us. He reached out to us in our strangeness, in our being enemies. And so if God can reach out to us when we were strangers to him, when we were even his enemies, then it should be possible for us to show love to strangers regardless of who they are or where they come from. God wants us to show love to strangers. We call that hospitality, don't we? That doesn't necessarily mean having someone in your home. It can mean all sorts of different ways. People that we come across that we don't know, that we see who need help, giving them practical love and care. Because apart from anything else, we never know who it is that we're showing hospitality to. The writer says in verse 2 that some people have shown hospitality to angels without even realizing it. Now, that would be cool, wouldn't it? To say, I had an angel staying in my house last night. I didn't know that. But wouldn't that be amazing? That would be cool. We don't have time to look at the whole subject of angels this morning, but I just want to say very briefly that angels are created beings who act as God's servants and messengers. And I've put some Bible verses, some some references down on the outlines. So if you want to go away and look at that, not now, but look at that maybe later, you can do that and follow that up. But angels are created beings. God created angels when he created the universe. They haven't always existed. Okay, They're not eternal like God. They're created beings just like us. They're not normally visible to us because they're spiritual beings. But God will sometimes allow them to be seen by us so that we can see something or somebody physical as they interact with us. We won't realize they're angels normally, which is what this verse says, but God sends them to protect and to guard those that have trusted in Jesus and to act as messengers and guards and protection. They will, there will be angels in this room this morning. We can't see them, but if we've trusted in Jesus, then God will send and does send his angels to guard over us and protect us and watch over us. There are angels in this room, just as there are demons. Demons are fallen angels who, along with Satan, rebelled against God. This is a real thing. We, we, we tend to just look at what we see. But that, what we see is not reality. It's the unseen that is the reality. And this morning, there will be demons in this room. There will also be angels in this room. We don't need to be frightened of that. We've got the Holy Spirit living in us. And he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. Amen? Amen. Fantastic. But there will be angels in this room, unseen beings that God sends to protect us. And if we've trusted in Jesus, then we will have angels frequently in our lives interacting with us in ways that we don't always realize and probably never do realize. God sends angels to look after us and protect us. Now, we're not meant to focus on angels. And throughout the history of the church, people get a little bit fixated by angels. And maybe some of you, even this morning, oh, I'm going to go away and start looking at all these verses and kind of get fascinated by that. We're not meant to do that. We're not meant to worship angels. We're meant to focus on Jesus. We're meant to worship Jesus. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when there's an angel giving John the, the, the vision and giving information, he bows at the feet of the angel and the angel says, get up, I'm just a created being like you. Worship Jesus, don't worship me. So we're not meant to get obsessed with and focus on angels. We're meant to worship Jesus. But it's good to know a little bit about them. And I've put some verses on your outline if you want to go in. Check that out later. Then in verse 3, we read this. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are ill-treated as if you yourselves were suffering. We looked at this a few weeks ago when we looked at chapter 10 and the whole subject of opposition and persecution for the church around the world. And one of the ways that we can respond to who God is and what he's done for us is to show our love in practical ways to those who face opposition and persecution for their love for Jesus, some of whom will actually be in prison, as many Christian believers are around the world right now. 
God wants us to love believers in prison and those who are being persecuted this morning for the sake of the gospel. Now, we're, we're blessed in the sense that we don't yet have church members here this morning who are out in prison locked up for their faith. That, that hasn't happened here yet, but it might do. That might be something that will come, and I think it will come in this country. It's beginning to already happen, and we need to be ready for that. But one of the ways we can show our love in, in, in a practical way to our brothers and sisters who are overseas is firstly to pray for them. We're not there physically. We can't visit them, but we can pray for them. We don't need to be physically there to pray for someone. And secondly, we can give to organizations that then do practically support them and, and are in a position to help the local church support families perhaps who've lost a husband or a father, the breadwinners who have then been locked up and then they suddenly got no money. And there's a variety of organizations that you can do that with and engage with prayer points and so on, Open Doors and Barnabas Aid and Release International Voice of the Martyrs. And again, I've put some of the websites on your outline if you want to uh, f- follow those up. And I'd really encourage you to do that. Subscribe to one of them or, or more of them. Get their newsletters. Uh, get their prayer requests. And give financially to them. You know, just giving something like £30 a month will transform. £30 a month to us is a significant amount of money, but to many people in the developing world and persecuted countries, that is a phenomenal amount of money and would transform a family situation, something that we think nothing of, perhaps a, you know, a, 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 a takeaway on a Saturday night cost. That will transform a family, our brothers and sisters who are overseas right now in prison being persecuted for the gospel. So I'd encourage you to do that. God wants us to love believers in prison and those who are being persecuted for the gospel. The writer then says in verse 4, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. God wants us again to respond to who he is and to all that he's done for us by honoring marriage and showing our love in practical ways to those who get married. And why is marriage and sexual purity such a big deal to God? Well, partly because human marriage is intended to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and all those that have trusted in him. The Bible describes all those that have put their faith and trusted in Jesus as being Jesus' bride, the bride that he loved and came and died for on the cross. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes again, he will finally be reunited with that bride, with all of those who've trusted in Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you've surrendered your life to him, you are part of that collective bride, that, the church. And when Jesus comes again, you will finally meet with him face to face. And there's going to be a great celebration. The Bible calls it a wedding supper to celebrate the marriage of Jesus and his bride, all those that have trusted in him. Now, on Saturday, Callum and Louise are going to hold a wedding supper to celebrate their marriage, and it's going to be amazing, I'm sure, but even more amazing will be the marriage supper of Jesus and his bride. I'm sure Saturday is going to be phenomenal, but when Jesus comes again, we're on a whole other level of celebrations. It's going to be amazing when all those that have trusted in him throughout history will finally be united with him. And and so human marriage is a sacred picture of the great spiritual marriage between Jesus and those that have trusted in him, between Jesus and the church. It's sacred. It's holy. And so as believers in Jesus, we need to honor marriage and treat it with great respect and reverence. Marriage isn't just some kind of relationship we can pick up and put down. It's a sacred relationship that we need to give great honor and respect to. Now, it's important to make clear that according to the Bible, marriage can only be between one man and one woman, and marriage is intended to be for life. And any sexual activity outside of the marriage of one man and one woman 
is described in the Bible as being sexual immorality, and it's sinful. And that means that sex before marriage is sinful, sex outside of marriage is sinful, and living with someone who isn't your husband or wife is sinful. And the writer here gives a really strong warning because he says that those who commit adultery or those that commit any other kind of sexual immorality, sex before marriage or outside of marriage, will face God's judgment. This is really, really serious stuff. He's not, this is the consuming fire we're talking about, the consuming fire that we shouldn't mess with and play around with. And, and we need to take marriage and sexual purity incredibly seriously. God wants us to show our love to Him and those around us by honoring our marriage and their marriage and marriage in general and staying sexually pure. Marriage is a sacred thing and we need to treat it with reverence and, and great respect. Our society doesn't. But as believers in Jesus, as, as those who are His bride, we need to treat human marriage as that great wonderful picture of the great eternal marriage. So what does that look like day by day then in reality? Well, I guess a number of things. It could mean that we are praying for those who are married. Whether we're single or married, we should be praying for marriages, the marriages that are around us, and particularly those in our church family and perhaps those in our physical family, that God will protect them, that God will bless those marriages, that they will keep them from temptation, that they'll keep those marriages strong and healthy. We should be praying for those who are going to get married, for, for Callum and Louise, and we've done that this morning because it's such a sacred, important thing. We can do practical things to help married couples with, with young children, like offering to babysit so that they can you know, spend some time alone on, and, and just get some time together as a couple. All sorts of kind of practical things that we can do to help married people, married couples. But we also need to be really careful how we interact with members of the opposite sex who are married and those who are not married for that matter we need to make sure that our behavior isn't inappropriate in any way as we interact with people who are married. How we relate to and how we think about members of the opposite sex that are married needs to be done with absolute purity. And those of us who are married need to make sure that we don't allow anything into our lives or into our hearts or into our thoughts, into our vision, that will damage our marriages. And the best way to do that, I guess, is to ask ourselves the question, are my thoughts about those who are married and are my actions towards those who are married, are they loving? Am I demonstrating my reverence towards God in the way that I think and behave where marriage and sexual purity is concerned? And for those of us who are married, are we treating our married uh, our husband or wife, are we treating them with the respect that they deserve? Are we treating our marriage as something that is sacred, that is not something that can be played with, something that is sacred and pure and holy? Are we treating marriage with the sacredness that it deserves? Then lastly, the writer says this in verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now remember this, this whole section from 13 all the way to the end of the book is all about how we respond to everything else we've heard in Hebrews. All the stuff about how, how great Jesus is and all that Jesus has done for us. It's all about, from now onwards, about how we respond to God and all that he's done for us and who Jesus is. It's about allowing our love for God and our reverence for him to influence our behavior and flow out into our, all that we do, into our marriages, into our families, into our relationships, and so on. And in this case, the writer highlights our money. 
And the writer's point is that to love money is to fail to love and trust God. If we love money, it means we're not trusting God. That's what this verse is saying. If we love money, we're not trusting God and we're not loving God. And when we love money and we want more and are not content with what God has given to us, and when we fail to give sacrificially to God as an act of worship by giving to Him, then what we're doing is we're demonstrating that we don't love God. Jesus says, you know, where our, where our hearts are, where our, where our money is, is where our heart is. And what we do with our money shows the real state of our love for God. Our bank balances, our bank statements are theological statements. They show the place that God has in our lives. And, and when we fail to give sacrificially to God, we're demonstrating that we don't love God and that we don't trust Him to provide for our needs. You know, God wants us to step out and be bold and give beyond what we think we can give and and, and trust Him and and take those big risks and say, God, you are able to provide for all my needs, so I will step out and I will keep giving and I will keep loving you and blessing you and blessing others with the wealth you've given me. If we've trusted in Jesus, then God has promised to never leave us, to never forsake us, so we should trust Him, we should live a simple life, and we should seek first His kingdom rather than pursuing wealth. If we're always wanting more, a a newer car, the latest phone, the latest gadget, a better TV package, better holidays, bigger house, and so on, then what we're saying, not always, but but, but generally what this verse is saying is that that, that what we're saying when we do that is that God isn't enough, and what God has given me isn't enough, and I'm dissatisfied with that, and God doesn't know me well enough. God doesn't know what I need best. I know best, and I need this. God wants us to be content with what we have, rather than always striving for more and more things. And if we love money and material things and we're always wanting more, then we're failing to love God and trust Him. Now, it's not wrong to have... To have ble- if God blesses you with wealth and, and you've got... You know, things, that, that's fine. But the important thing is our heart. Do we, do we love this? Are we craving for it? Or are we using it to bless God and to bless others? God wants us to love and trust Him rather than money. And in our Western society, it's really difficult, it's really hard because you know, adverts are screaming at us all the time that if we just had this or if we just spent a bit more or earned a bit more, then we would be happy, then we'd be fulfilled. And the reality is none of that ever works. It doesn't fulfill. Only Jesus does that. God wants us to, to love Him and trust Him rather than have money. And even if we lose everything we have, then God wants us to still trust Him because He'll always be with us. He's promised to provide all our needs but not necessarily all our wants. And there's a massive difference between what we need and what we want. Our actual needs are fairly small in life. Enough food to go through the day, you know, a shelter over our head and some clothes. They're our needs. Our wants are a whole other thing. God has promised to supply all our needs, but not necessarily all our wants. And so he says in verse 6, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Even if we lose everything in this life, the Lord will provide for us the needs that we have both now and eternally. Even if we lose everything, He will provide for us. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I'll trust in the Lord. Our God is a consuming fire. And yet if we've trusted in Jesus, then He's adopted us, He's forgiven us, He's brought us into this amazing eternal father-child relationship. And the knowledge and reality of who God is, the consuming fire, along with all that He's done for us, 
in and through Jesus ought to transform the way that we live. And in this passage, we've just picked out just five simple ways, but hugely profound ways in which we can respond to all that God is and all that he's done for us. Ways that we should then live in response. It should transform, that that knowledge of who God is should transform how we behave towards our Christian brothers and sisters, our family, so that we love them like family. It should transform how we behave towards strangers so that we love them in practical ways. It should motivate us to love our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution in practical ways. It should transform how we view marriage and sexual purity, and it should transform how we view money and material things. I want us just to take a a few moments to stop and, and think about what we've looked at this morning. Think about these five simple but hugely significant and profound things. In view of who God is and all that He's done for us in and through the Lord Jesus, what does my behavior and actions towards my Christian brothers and sisters look like? What does my behavior and my actions towards strangers look like? What does my behavior and actions towards my Christian brothers who are facing persecution around the world this morning, what does that look like? What does my behavior and actions towards marriage, my marriage, and the the marriages of others look like? And what does my behavior and actions towards money and my possessions look like? Let's just take a few seconds, maybe a few moments, just to reflect on those huge questions. God is speaking to you this morning, if the Holy Spirit is prompting you to respond in some practical, tangible way to to perhaps one or more of these things, then I just encourage you to do that. Don't put that off. And whatever that looks like for you, whatever that means for you, to do that this week and to move forward with that. Don't, Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't ignore what the Holy Spirit is saying to you this morning. Father, we come to you this morning and we stand in awe of who you are and all that you've done for us. We stand in awe of your greatness. We worship you as the consuming fire, the one that burns up all your enemies. And we proclaim that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, forgive us for when we treat you with a lack of reverence and respect. Forgive us when we fail to live in ways that Respond to who you are. We thank you too, Lord, that you have, through the Lord Jesus, made a way that we can come and embrace the consuming fire as our Father and be loved by you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross for us. Thank you that you bore the wrath of a holy God so that we wouldn't have to. We thank you that we can live in in relationship with you. Help us now this morning, we pray, Lord, to, in response to all that you are and all that you've done, help us to live lives that honor you and glorify you in our marriages, in in, in our money, in our possessions, 
in our relationships, in the way that we behave with those around us. Help us to demonstrate this, we pray. Father, I pray for anybody this morning that you are speaking to. Lord, would you give them grace and humility to respond to your voice? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.